Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm your host for this episode, Joe Bygall. The new year is usually a time of change for many of us. And this year, we at the King's Fund are no exception. We have a new CEO, Sarah Woolnell, who is our first podcast guest of 2024. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So later in this episode, we'll talk more about your leadership journey to date. But I'm sure our listeners would love to get to know the person behind the role. Is that okay with you if we start there? Of course. Yeah, sounds good. So I'm just going to start with um, a question about yourself as a young person. When you were a teenager, what did you think you'd grow up to be? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I went through a phase of wanting to become a newsreader, but I was quite into politics and campaigning. So I probably thought uh, something to do with politics, campaigning, working on social issues. So there's a theme coming through already, isn't there, which is great. There is a theme. Brilliant, brilliant. (laughs) And thinking about you as your younger self, what's the uh, favourite thing about what you do now? It's definitely being with people and getting energy from being with lots of different people. And actually already in this role, but in my previous roles for a long time, one of the greatest privileges, but the things I've loved the most is working with a really diverse group of people, whether that's clinical staff, academics, um, you know, external colleagues, stakeholders. I've really loved that. And that speaks to me getting lots of energy from being with people. Great. And that's lovely to hear as well. And I'm sure our listeners will be really looking forward to, as you're going out on work with the fund, really engaging with them um, in the health and care system. So you've held senior roles in a variety of health organisations, including the civil service and the charity sector. What work in your career are you most proud of? Well, there's probably a couple of themes. Um, I've worked on a number of projects over the years about getting people with lived experience of health conditions more involved in the work of organisations. So I led a big piece of work at Cancer Research UK to involve beneficiaries, people with lived experience of cancer, more in every aspect of the organisation's work uh, from advising on big research grants to helping to do perhaps the things that 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 beneficiaries and people with lived experience tend to typically do more of look look at our information uh, advise on policy issues that we're campaigning on but i was proud that it was a really thorough detailed piece of work and it did transform how the organisation thought about this sort of work that's one theme my most recent job i was um merging charities and and developing a new strategy for respiratory for the national respiratory charity that was really rewarding and uh, loads of hard work so that stands out as a sort of recent example of at times I thought this is really hard to do are we going to be able to do it successfully and I'm proud of where it's landed. I think the question we always ask or tend to ask people that come on the podcast about their leadership journey is when did you actually realise you you were a leader? When did you actually self-identify? I don't know that there was a single moment, and I think it's definitely been an evolution. You know, I have many times felt, I suppose, imposter syndrome about, you know, taking on a new role, 
navigating and and finding a way to try to make a success of it. So I don't think I've often thought of myself, uh, perhaps a bit more recently in career, but I certainly haven't gone around thinking I'm a leader. I've gone around thinking I've got a job to do. I'm going to try to do that really well and bring people with me, work with people to make a success of different different jobs. I have to say, when I'd, um, uh, I'd gone back to work from maternity leave with first child and was was for various reasons, you know, finding it up and down and a bit tough as lots of people do. And I remember a very kind, wise colleague saying, uh, you know, there will be really tough times but people are looking to you, Sarah, uh, and watching. And the fact that you're doing it, you're really, um, you know, showing that others can do this in a certain way. Um, and so then you start to get glimpses of, uh, I suppose, some of the responsibilities but also some of the nice the, the nice things about trying to show inclusive, human, very real leadership with all its um, warts. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, who were your role models? And then maybe we'll come on to thinking about some advice that you'd give to your younger self and other people starting in their career. I've been really lucky to work with some fantastic people. There are lots of people I've looked at and admired elements of how they work and how they lead. A couple of previous um, chief executives that I've worked for at Cancer Research UK, hugely admired, both from their, I suppose, knowledge and, and how they've driven excellence and made an evidence-based case for change. That's been a theme throughout my career and it's one of the reasons I'm so delighted to be where I am. But also I've seen and particularly learned from women in leadership positions, um, particularly trying to navigate the kind of childbearing years and having young kids and combining that with a leadership role and had really good bits of advice, you know, kind of be kind to yourself sometimes and, and various other things that people have have told me about managing different elements of life. So lots of people I would look to in different ways. Brilliant. If you look back in your career and you met yourself as your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? I'm I'm a bit of a worrier. So I think I'd probably say don't worry so much and kind of go for it. But I think probably the worrying and the conscientiousness has fueled something quite useful and that desire to do a a, a, a kind of good job for people I work with, for organizations I'm working for is is on balance no bad thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's lovely to hear. It's lovely that you've shared this with us as well and been so open. It's fantastic to hear. I think it would be great if we could move on to your strategic leadership. And we know that paying attention to the environments and the cultures that are developed in which staff work and can thrive in, especially if they're compassionate, inclusive, and kind, is really, really important. And actually, that's one of the, the major roles of good leadership. And all our evidence at the King's Fund, both nationally and internationally, shows us that. So from your perspective and experience, how can we build a culture where everybody feels that the strategy of the organisation is meaningful and gives them purpose? I think that's um, an absolutely fantastic question. And it's one I've had cause to reflect on quite a bit over the last um, few years, particularly in my last role, where I was merging organisations and, and, and different cultures and trying to develop a strategy. What have I learned? I think any strategy is only as good as 
the life of it after a sort of publication. So to build a strategy that is going to live and is going to drive change, I really strongly believe uh, you need to engage people, you need to take people on a journey in an organisation and people need to feel some ownership. And that doesn't mean you have to have thousands of people writing a strategy or it's not necessarily, of course, by committee. But I think there's got to be a, a collective understanding of what are we dissatisfied about? Because strategy is built on wanting something to shift. And then, uh, you know, What's the context? What are the choices we've made about the direction we're going in? And how are we going to collectively follow that path? People have got to find a way in. They've got to feel part of something. They've got to understand their place and they need to feel valued. And then I think that's the interplay between the strategy and the culture. And, you know, as everyone says, culture trumps strategy every day of the week. And so you've got to pay sufficient attention to what's it like to work here? What's this place? Uh, what does it feel like? How do we make people really feel they can bring themselves and be their best and kind of enjoy it as well, hopefully? <laughs> and, and along that cultural change piece, just, just another question that's linked to that. Thinking back to your work in the charity sector, what can we learn from new social movements and approaches to change? I was thinking in the, my last 30 plus years as a, as a change uh, leader, the way that we do that, how we think about this has moved on immensely from um, 30 plus years ago. So I'm really interested in just dipping into your experience and your thoughts about that. I've been lucky enough to work with lots of groups and lots of individuals um, with lived experience of particular conditions um, who have felt really passionate about the need to drive change. So I think one element that, that feels particularly relevant is kind of really deep listening. And in lots of the different organisations I've been in, it's ensuring there's a, a really good feedback loop. So I think that a danger that charities can fall into is hearing some of their beneficiary group more loudly uh, or more prominently than, you know, the, the full range of views. So to make sure when you are trying to create a movement that you're, I suppose, firstly, really listening and that you do that in quite an agile way because things change and you want to keep up. And then secondly, you play that back into the fabric of the, the organisation so that you can move together. And I think be really humble about learning from different places and different people and pace and energy. So again, in my last role, something we heard really strongly from the beneficiary group is, you know, they didn't feel prioritised or particularly listened to by um, lots of authoritative places. And they wanted us as their charity to be impatient and pacey on their behalf. They wanted speed. They wanted a movement that felt ambitious uh, and really dissatisfied for change. And that's what we tried to deliver for them. And from your experience, just the, the link between working with beneficiaries, being agile, able to change, there's a link between that and the cultural environment that, um, needs, to, that needs to be created if you are going to be agile. So what are one or two pieces of advice you would give to organisations that were trying to be nimble in terms of the culture that they were created? Nimble and, and um, forward thinking. 
Yeah, it's a really good question. And I've worked in organisations that are both nimble and definitely not anywhere near as agile as they could have been. There's clearly something about the right cultural conditions and you've got to give people enough scope to get on with things. So there is an empowerment piece in this and really championing that and championing it in in every respect. So sometimes it won't work. That's totally fine. But you do have to give people the space to to listen, to act on that, to to, to act pretty quickly and and be responsive as well. So I think it's both both the conditions to to give people the resources to do that and then it's the the, the cultural piece to really champion it. Because I think the danger is organisations, particularly in charities where resources are tight, you, you can become quite risk averse. You don't want to waste anything. But I think to sometimes see innovation in the best sense, you need to let people go out and have a go at things and try different things. Yeah. So it's that fail fast, fail forward piece, isn't it? Linked to your improvement agenda. Um, and then I'm going to come on to the question that I think many people will be curious about. What drew you to the role of Chief Executive at the King's Fund? Well, Joe, I've spent all of my career, really nearly all of my career in health and social care, mainly in charities and the voluntary sector, a bit of time in government. What do I absolutely love? Um, trying to drive change and trying to drive positive, constructive change for beneficiaries uh, and system change and almost where better to come and try and make a positive impact in health and health and care than the King's Fund. I have had a particular passion for driving evidence-based policy into practice, partly because a constant frustration throughout my career, particularly when I've been at medical research charities, has been well, we know what works. So why isn't it being delivered? And what are the barriers to that? So I feel really passionate about shortening that gap between, you know, policy into practice and implementation and learning how we best do that, sharing those lessons and trying to be really constructive about it in pretty difficult circumstances. Yeah, thank you. We'll be back in a moment. To resolve the challenges facing health and care, the sector needs to improve recruitment, retention and the health and well-being of the workforce. Explore the changing nature of work and how this can support the health and care system to adapt to future challenges at our annual Leadership and Workforce Summit on Tuesday the 19th of March 2024. Book your ticket via the link in our show notes. Welcome back. I know you've only been, I've been here four weeks now, haven't you, in terms of um, taking up the role? Four weeks tomorrow. Four weeks tomorrow. Congratulations. (laughs) But what do you see as the overlaps of difference between a think tank um, such as ourselves and the charity sector you've worked in previously? So King's Fund is a charity, but it holds its um, title of think tank, I think, quite lightly because we do a variety of things. But are there any sort of differences that you could put your your finger on well, I think there's something about um, I mean look 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 all charities have to think about their public benefit and their independence carefully and in the round. The King's Fund prides its independence in many dimensions very highly as it should do because our USP is is about speaking truth and being very clear 
about an evidence base. And I also think the combination of the functions that we or the the things that we do. So, you know, thought leadership and uh, analysis with a deep knowledge and understanding, hopefully, uh, of the workforce derived from our leadership and, and OD work. In some other charities, I mean, you, you, you want to be independent, but there is a... Um, perhaps a, a narrower client group. And so there is a campaigning role that's dialed up. That might be one difference. I mean, I do think in some of the charities that I've um, worked in previously, or I've, I've, I've been a trustee of, um, there's an absolute burning platform uh, way forward. You know, this is our, uh, we, we're a uh, mental health charity that does research. This is what we do. I think for some of the think tanks, there needs to perhaps be extra thought given to. Okay, our vision and purpose is to prove to improve health and care in England. You can do that in so many ways. How do we feel over particular periods of time we can achieve that the best? So the job to really define how are we going to drive the most impact to meet our charitable aims is one that really requires lots of thought. And there may be different answers to that over different time periods. That really brings me on to my next question, which is around how do you see the role of the fund in the health and care space? And I think you started to touch on your answer there. Is there anything um, in particular that you have seen or are thinking about in terms of what potential does it have to create more change or impact? It's just some thoughts would be great at this point in time. Yeah, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, I really want us to be a constructive partner. What's the context? The context is is tough. We know people are having a, a, a hard time workforce wise across the health and care system. Things are not where we would like them to be. It's easy to describe the problems we face. And it's important that you know, we do to an extent, but we also want to make a really positive contribution to driving the change. Point two, you know, the world is changing, society is changing, there's huge demographic and other change. I want us to be able to help reimagine health and social care for the future. That's one of the roles we can play and to be a generator of new ideas. At the same time, there is rather a lot that we do know. And so finding ways to make that happen, I think, is going to be really critical too. And I know through the LNOD work, that's some of what we focus on. The King's Fund's increased our work both internally and externally in the area of equity, diversity and inclusion. And it's not really an area, is it? I say that lightly. It's, it's, a, way, it's a way of being. If you're going to do it well, it becomes part of everything that you do. And we recognise at the fund that we've got a way to go on this. But what are your thoughts on how we could work in ways that celebrate diversity and create inclusive, meaningful work that inspires vision and purpose? Well, that's a big question. I think the first thing to say is I recognise like lots of organisations, we have a way to go. Uh, but I have been impressed at how active these issues are being discussed and thought about and it does feel pretty central to the fabric of who we are and what we're trying to achieve. We've got to keep at it. Uh, we've got to keep putting it, I suppose, at the heart of what we're trying to do and be. We've got to involve 
diversity in all its many ways in every element of what we do. We've got to have diversity of thought. We need to have a diverse workforce. And when we think about how we deliver our work programs, we want to also think about doing that doing that in diverse ways. I mean, some of my favourite work in years gone by at different organisations has been going out and trying to deliver services differently in communities that perhaps haven't been terribly well served. And one of the things I've learned is you do hand over control and uh, to an extent and you you work in a different sort of partnership way. I've learned a huge amount um, uh, uh, and there's no blueprint. You've got to be flexible. You've got to be open to doing things differently. But it all comes back to starting by recognising um, that if we're to improve the health and care system uh, and improve the way health and care is delivered and outcomes, let's face it, then we really need to embrace this. We need to pay attention to it. We need to prioritise it. Are there any specific areas of focus that you'd like us to consider in the King's Fund? Now, again, I, I flag the fact it's very, really early days, so this might be an unfair question, Sarah. You know, we've got an ele- this is an election year, even if you were to think about them this year into next, into 25. Is there anything that you're particularly itching to get on with or wanting to focus on? Joe, there's a long list of things I'm itching to get on with um, and focus on. And I think the difficulty, and and this is, you know, something that lots of organisations f- faces you do have to make choices in order to drive the impact you want and so when we think about our next strategy period I'm pretty sure one of the hardest things is going to be what choices do we make and how do we narrow it down but a couple of issues I feel really passionately about one is very timely because I know we are due to publish a report that is about how we do what we've collectively nationally been saying we will do for decades and that is move care, more care out into the community and and social care from acute setting. I have lived and breathed this over the last few years when I was working in respiratory where the majority of people living with respiratory illness want and need and should have good treatment in the community and too often they were ending up in acute settings. They didn't need to be there. They didn't want to be there. Not good for anyone because there isn't the right infrastructure, the right support, the right services and investment. So this is one of those public policy issues that really need some attention. feel very passionately about that. I feel really passionately about tackling health inequalities and I know the fund is active and it will remain a theme. It must do. And that links to the underlying health of the population. Am I allowed just one more? You are. Go for it, Sarah. Go for it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And that's to say, I am interested in how we, as the King's Fund, keep looking at the rest of the world and learning lessons about how others are doing it and sharing that. We've done some some of that work. I think there's always a huge thirst for how are others trying to address these really thorny issues? What can we learn culturally from other places about how to support a workforce um, and so on and so forth? So that's just, a, a, I suppose, a personal passion because I've, I've, I've been involved in some international projects 
projects in the past and personally learned a huge amount, as well as at times found it really reassuring because you realise we're not doing it that badly or no one else has quite, you know, cracked it either. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at international work is so fabulous and absolutely necessary. We've learned a lot in the leadership and OD space through doing that as well in terms of what are the, how are the systems working, etc. So I think that's fantastic. And then the final question is, I read your blog in January, Sarah, about reasons to be cheerful. And I, and I think there's a question here about what are your hopes for the future? What are you hoping for um, in the next few years and what gives you hope? I suppose the, the, the macro hope is that we do make progress tackling some of the big, thorny, tricky health and social care challenges and that there is an opportunity for a bit of renewal, a bit of optimism, dare I say it, some 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 investment where it's needed, but some attention nationally, collectively, societally to some of the big, major challenges we face. From a King's Fund perspective, my hope is that we can make together as a constructive, positive organisation a really good impact in trying to help reimagine health and social care across the country and be a really good partner to people who I hope value what we do. Please tell us, I'm sure they will, where we're not getting it right, that we can listen hard, but that we can make a positive contribution. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you, Sarah, for joining me. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's been really good, really good. You've got you've gone easy on me, I think. <laughs> Thank you. The show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes can be found at www.kingsfund.org.uk slash KS podcast. And you can get in touch with us via X, formerly Twitter, our account is at the Kings Fund. The producer for this episode was Emma Sheffield and has been edited by Bespoken Media. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thank you for listening. We hope you join us next time.